run, rabbit, run, rabbit, run, run, run. Don't give the farmer his fun, fun, fun. He'll get by without his rabbit pie. So run, rabbit, run, rabbit, run. I'm Darren. I'm Grace. And welcome to the 250, your weekly slash fortnightly look at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. This week, uh, Andrew is not able to join me, but I'm joined by Grace. How are you, Grace? I'm well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Oh, no, a pleasure to, to have you on. Um, just in terms of for our, our listeners um, who are sort of not familiar with, with your work, I primarily I came across you with your work at the Mary Sue. Yes. You did like episode reviews of the X Files of that and commentary, um, and I think you've done lots of other stuff. So, wh- where can we find you? What do you? Where do you write? Uh, I'm on a brief kind of writing hiatus at the moment because I'm actually doing an MA in film. Um, but um, you're right. I did used to contribute to the Mary Sue. I did a newbie recap series for the X Files, which was a lot of fun. Um, so anyone who's into the X Files, I'd ask you to go and check those out because it was always a lot of fun to discuss it with seasoned veterans with my. Uh, very innocent eyes. Um, and other than that, I've contributed to websites like Under the Gun Review and Filmoria and the Irish website The Coven, um, mainly writing about film and issues like feminism and identity and things like that. So my Twitter feed is at Pixie Grace, if anyone would like to check that out either. Perfect. And, and very worth a look as well. It's funny you should mention writing about identity, um, because I think that's sort of very appropriate to the film we're going to talk about. Yes, I think so too. The film we're going to talk about is Get Out, which is Jordan Peele's um, 2017. I, I'm not even sure how to classify it. It's sort of like a social thriller, I think, is how he's described it. But it's it's in form. It's sort of a comedy horror movie, basically. Um, and it it was released back in... Uh, it was released over here in, in March. It was released in the States, I think, at the end of February. Um, and it's just done phenomenally well. It was on a budget of four and a half million US dollars, I believe. And it's gone on to grace... Uh, to, sorry, to, to earn... I think north of 138 million at the U.S. box office, and I think only two million worldwide. But uh, that's quite a haul. That is quite a haul. It's very impressive too, because I remember I think I, I first heard the name kind of a couple of weeks ago, possibly when it started doing a couple of festival appearances. And it was very much, it seemed to me like one of those films that you kind of hear a lot of people on Twitter talking about, and it becomes a real sleeper hit. And then as soon as it comes into cinemas, there's so much buzz around it that everyone kind of just rushes off to see it. Um, so I'm very pleased to see it doing really well because. I find it kind of refreshing when you have a film like that that has barely any hype and all of a sudden it just blows up in the space of a few weeks, um, especially when it's one that's good. It, it, it is. And I mean, it, it's funny you should mention sort of the social media coverage because like it, it does seem like it, it came a bit out of left field. I think people were watching it, obviously, because of the, the pedigree involved. I mean, Peele um, is, is best known for his work on, on Keen Peele and Comedy Central, the, uh, the sketch show that's, that's quite brilliant, actually. Um, and it, it, it deals with a, a lot of the same sort of themes and all the same sort of uh, subject matter almost as, as the movie. You can tell that it's like a, it's something that interests him. But I mean, in terms of like social media and stuff like that, you've had it's just sort of grown phenomenally. It's attracted incredible audiences. There's like, have you heard about the, the Get Out Challenge, uh, which is, is something where people on Twitter are recreating an iconic scene from the film where one of the characters runs at the camera um but apparently like it it led to situations where people were failing to swerve at the right moment and and comedy ensuing as a result which is like that's a remarkable pop culture impact for what is essentially a low budget horror film to have and for a a low budget horror film that i think has as as many weighty themes almost as as a sort of like because it's 
it, it is sort of couched in genre trappings, but it's it's a very I don't want to say important film as if there are important and unimportant films, but it's a film that deals with subject matter that I think is very relevant today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, I'd agree on all of those points. I hadn't actually heard about the Get Out Challenge, but that sounds amusing. Um, definitely a, a means of injuring yourself if you don't manage to move at the last minute. Um, but yeah, l- like you say, I think seeing how people interact with these things, especially on social media now, I find really fascinating. And it's it's something I've kind of looked at in the course of my MA, um, because I know how there's you know a lot of conversation about the different ways people market movies and things like that these days. Um, but when you see how, how fans and kind of, you know, not just film fans, but just kind of genre fans, um, you know, really find ways to interact with the things that they love and engage with them in those ways. Um, and it can really spread word of mouth and, and get people interested who maybe might not otherwise think of seeing it. Um, it's it's just very interesting to see how these films find their audience, especially, as you say, when they have kind of deeper themes and they might get people thinking about stuff that wouldn't maybe occur to them otherwise. I mean, it, it's it's funny you should mention it in the context of, say, studying your, your MA and in terms of like in terms of like film as a as a larger thing, because this is. We, I mentioned at the start, this is on a budget of 4.5 million, which is with peanuts, it's chump change, basically. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of, it, there's a sense that increasingly uh, cinemas are dominated by these these huge budget sort of tentpole films. Yeah. And it, it's amazing to see a film that's, that's this small sort of break through and sort of have the sort of presence. Because I think it's, it's Bloomhouse who produced it, I believe. Yeah. Um, who are like, the, they're, they're basically, they're a, they're a low rent sort of uh, horror film studio. And their, their policy has always been to invest minimum low to low to medium budgets. Although, in, in fairness, as budgets have ballooned, low and medium now encompasses, I think, up to 20 million. But basically to invest in these films, release them all and sort of see how they do. Like, um, was it they did the, the Purge, for example, Yeah. Uh, which is, is one of their, their big earners. Um, and they did like Split, the, the M. Night Shyamalan joint. Yeah. Um, and it's, yeah, it's just remarkable to see that sort of their, their impact, their outsized impact. And I think... I like I like that there's still a market for taking these sorts of risks because I, I can't imagine anybody greenlighting say get out with a thirty or a forty or a fifty million dollar budget. But I think with four point five million dollars it, it becomes feasible to do. Yeah, very much so. And I think you know, I can really see that becoming more of a done thing, I think, in filmmaking as time goes on. Because like you say, the market has become so dominated by massive tentpole releases. And even if you look at say like the, the biggest money earners last year were all kind of franchises or sequels and so on, I think it's very easy for a lot of people to get the idea that the only films that work now are films that have that kind of existing familiarity with audiences. But if you have something, a property like this where it doesn't cost a lot to make but if you can make it in a way that's very clever and a way that you know is going to appeal to a genre literate and a very film literate audience um i think the success of get out and um another studio i think i've noticed that does this very well is a24 who did like it's i well i'm not sure if they did it they did moonlight yeah they did moonlight they did the witch i think was the big kind of uh, breakthrough for them and ex machina and things like that um, where yeah. they did, they, they use kind of very kind of clever, incisive marketing strategies and, and just built really big word of mouth. And because of that, the films were a lot more successful, perhaps, than they might have been otherwise. Um, but yeah, that kind of, I suppose, template where you take a low budget and you just make a film that's just very good, kind of pushes all the right buttons. I think it's really heartening to see that you don't need massive financial clout behind you to really get an audience into theatres. We should probably talk a little bit about Get Out, because mm-hmm. I'm kind of, Normally, I'm not a big fan of of sort of like spoiler talk and like being wary of spoiling films in terms of because I I think there's a tendency these days when you talk about spoilers to to treat films like narrative as as the paramount concern when you're talking about a film 
And it, it's also, I think, it's, it's sort of like a chilling effect. Like, I think that uh, when you talk about spoilers, it's a, a way of silencing criticism. Because if you're a reviewer, one of the quickest ways to shut a reviewer down is to say, well, you can't talk about that because that's a spoiler. It's like, yes, but it's, it's also a key part of what the film's about and, and how it does it. But I do think that when you're talking about Get Out, it's it's very important to, I would recommend seeing this as blind as possible. That's something I picked up because I, I have come to the stage now where I kind of, I prefer to read reviews after I've seen a film, um, just kind of as a personal thing, because I find that it's nice to kind of see what other people thought once you yourself have an impression of it. Um, but one of the reviews I read for Get Out, they, they made the point, um, or possibly not even the article, it might have been one of the commenters who said that, um, yeah, it's interesting from his perspective, it was that reviews had become very much more about like, um, very deep discussion of the film because it seemed like a lot of people now were avoiding reviews because they maybe they perceived them becoming um, much more filled with spoilers and, and so on. Um, but also, yeah, for something like this, I think the less you know, the better because it just it's a lot more effective if you don't really know what's coming. Because even the trailer for this, which I saw in the cinema a couple of weeks ago, um, I felt gave a little bit too much away. Um, so it, sometimes I think that can make maybe it just maybe the film wouldn't have as great an impact on someone if they already had a good idea where it was going to go from the trailer or from maybe a review or something that they had read. Yeah, and I mean, you talk about the, the trailer giving stuff away. One of the things I actually quite like about the trailer to Get Out is that it features a moment that is not actually in the film as well. That's a, that's a big moment in the trailer and isn't in the film at all, which I think is quite a clever marketing structure because mm -hmm. um, it, it allows you to sort of showcase something without giving anything away. I do think actually, because this is interesting, I've seen, I've actually seen Get Out uh, three times. I've been very lucky to see it three times. And interestingly enough, the first two times I saw it, I didn't know I was seeing it. Um, I saw it at two, two surprise screenings, one at the Dublin Film Festival and one uh, organized in, in town by, by a local cinema. And that's apparently, that's a big part of how they've marketed it, actually, because that was what um, Bloom, Bloomhouse did as well. They, they premiered it. Um, at I think was I'm not sure if it was Toronto or Sundance or somewhere like that, but they basically premiered it as a secret midnight screening, and it really does seem like it's the the perfect way to see the film. Like ideally, if you were seeing Get Out, you would probably not even know you were going to see Get Out. You'd just mm -hmm. you'd be sitting in a dark room and somebody would say, "Hey, I've got this film we should watch," and it would be Get Out. So we probably won't talk too much about what it's about, but I think. I really liked it. What what did you think of it, just generally speaking? I really enjoyed it. I think I, w I was very much expecting to enjoy it, I suppose, because of all of the good uh, buzz, I suppose, that I had heard. And from the, the trailer, it looked like very smart and very interesting. Um, but what, what I found that I really enjoyed about it was how long I spent, even though I had an idea where it was going, how long I sat in the cinema, just kind of curled up into a ball going, oh, God, this is like like just unbearable the tension when you feel like something awful is going to happen literally any second and then I really like the way the film builds up to that and then kind of lets loose at a certain point um I thought it was very effectively written and very effectively made yeah and I think I think it's astonishingly clever in terms of playing off like I, I sort of just described it at the start of the, the podcast as a social thriller or horror comedy but it's very much pitched within that it, it's its own beast I've never seen a movie quite like it uh, even though I've seen lots of movies that are like it in little ways, which I think is, is something that's really to its strength in that it's it's doing something that's very ambitious and very bold and very, I think, to be honest, confrontational. But it's doing it in a way that is, that's that's processed or packaged in a way that makes it accessible and processable. And I think that's that's something that's that's very much to its strength and something that I really, really like about it, you know? Yeah, no, I agree. And I think like, you know, to its credit, there is this sort of aspect that it's so clever in the way it's sort of, not necessarily to use the word message, but, you know, I suppose some of the points it's trying to make or some of the behavior that it's satirizing. Um, it does it in such a way that I feel 
you know, in some ways you might almost miss it the way it's done. Like it's very kind of clever and insidious and, and certainly from, from reading a couple of reviews, there were other things that hadn't kind of immediately occurred to me that I saw other people had picked up on. Um, and I think that's a sign of its strength in that, you know, it's a very well, well-versed study, I suppose, of social behavior and interaction and the way people deal with each other um, to the extent that, you know, there are certain behaviors represented in there, maybe that's that you wouldn't even immediately twig when you see them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it is. And I think it's, 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 it blends that perfectly to, to genre. And it's just, it's, it's, it's a fantastically confident, like, it's amazing to think this is the theatrical uh, directorial debut of, of this writer and director. I know, I know he's been working in, in sort of in, in sketch comedy for a while, but it's, it's just, it's an astoundingly confident piece. Um, so I guess this is sort of, this is, this is where we ask, because, because this is about the top 250 movies of all time as voted for by IMDb users, which by the way, I'm actually astonishingly happy to have seen this get on there. Um, cause at the start of, at the start of every, every year, every month, uh, myself, uh, and my co-host sort of go through the upcoming slate and you can see looking at the slate, there are movies that you know will get on the 250 just because of what they are, because of the demographics of the people who uh, spend time on the Internet Movie Database. Um, so, for example, you can be fairly sure that, you know, um, Guardians of the Galaxy Part 2 is going to show up on the list, uh, even though it hasn't already. So I'll edit this out if it does. Um, but also, um, you can tell, for example, that uh, Dunkirk will, because the audience, the audience of the, the database is made up of people who like that sort of film and who have that sort of worldview and who are predominantly, I think, you know, 30 to 40 years old, white and male. And I think that when I saw Get Out, um, I was I thought it was brilliant. And in doing this podcast, I really want to talk about it. And I remember watching it with keen sort of just just waiting for it to see if it would break into the list. And I think it's great that it did break into the list. Um, and I think that, um, well, first of all, do you think it deserves to be, be on the list of the top 250 movies of all time? Would it be on your top 250 movies of all time? Um, gosh, if I had to think about it, I could see it definitely fighting for a place. Because I always say when I'm trying to categorize, like, picking, say, my top five or ten movies, I can probably, like, pull a ranking together but after that everything just balloons because there's so many films that I love um but I think something like this because it's a type of film that it comes along and you really feel when you're watching it that it's not something that you've seen before even if it's you know the genre bits in it may be a bit more recognizable and you know some of the comedy might be a bit more familiar but this specific I suppose premise hasn't been done in that way and I think because of that because it's something that's quite original and distinctive in that way it's something that would be very easy to include because you think okay that made me think about stuff that maybe hadn't occurred to me before or maybe think about it in a different way um which I think is a good argument for having a film included if it can really kind of provoke that kind of thought in its audience not just enjoyment um, of the purely cinematic kinds. Yeah, and I do, I do think that's a very, very salient point to make with regards to the list that we're talking about, because we're not really talking about my favorite 250 or your favorite 250. We're talking about this monumental internet list thing, which is, is kind of a representative of almost the internet's collective mind. And I think it's a, it's a good thing to have a film like this on there, um, because it, it is a film that is that has really grabbed the popular imagination, but is, is smart, funny, well-constructed and, and clever. And I think... While I'm not sure it will make my top 250 movies ever, because I, I I feel really uncomfortable ranking movies, despite the fact I've apparently signed up to do a podcast about ranking movies. Uh, but I do um, I do think that it deserves to be on the list. I do think it deserves a place. I do think it deserves to be part of the conversation. And I'm thrilled. I'm absolutely thrilled, given that some of the movies that we've talked about on this list 
that it is on here. With that in mind, then we might sort of because because we've been very very vague for people who uh, who have been listening and who haven't seen the movie yet. So uh, I would recommend that they get out and see this movie as quickly as possible. Uh, would you concur? I would absolutely. Um, I was actually speaking to some of my friends um, this morning who were thinking about going to see it, and I was encouraging them to go. And also very much um, like I think we mentioned earlier, the less you know going in, the better, because it's just something that I think if you allow it to sort of creep up on you, it will be that much more effective. But one way or the other, I really think it's it's a very worthy and very enjoyable film and absolutely deserves an audience. Well, it's funny you should actually mention that about like your, your friends and not telling them what it is and just telling them to go see it. Um, apparently, Alison Williams, who's who's in the film, who's a prominent plays a prominent role in the film. Apparently, she spent her um, her entire um, her entire time filming it, telling her friends to go see it with absolutely no context. Um, she she even lied about what the film was about um, in order to sort of to keep them from from getting getting too deep into it. So then in mind, what we'll do is we will uh, segue gently into the spoilers and we'll sort of talk a bit more in depth. If you, dear listener, have not seen the film yet, go see the film uh, and then join us uh, in a moment. Right, so we are back from the spoiler zone. So, Grace, uh, what is Get Out about for you? Okay, um, for me personally, or just what is it about? What is it about? What's about? What's, yeah, what's it about mm-hmm. in general? What sort of what jumps? Um, I think for me, and you know, as as much as it probably sounds a bit obvious, but for me, it's very much kind of a meditation on on race relations and this very specific kind, I suppose, of racism in the US. Um, And I think it is the type of thing that that has to be explored in the US context because these things differ depending on historical context over the world. Um, But what I've noticed a lot of people saying about it, and I think this is very true, is that it seems to take aim at, you know, a particular white liberal mentality, the type of person who wouldn't normally think of themselves um, as being, you know, maybe bigoted or intolerant in in a racial way, um, but who have kind of maybe internalize little microaggressions or, or, or judgments that they don't even realize are, are othering black people. And this film just really explores that in a very clever way um, by having um, Rose bring her, her boyfriend home and kind of have her parents set up to be, you know, it, it's kind of interesting because I was sitting there the whole time that um, Chris, the lead character, meets her parents. And, and I'm sure from a certain perspective, her parents might seem like they're being very welcoming and friendly. But to my mind, every single thing they did was just very awkward and a bit cringeworthy and, and very forced. And I think once you get to the end of the film and you look at that in hindsight, it becomes just so much creepier. <laughs> so I think um, for me that that seems to be what the film is kind of um, discussing and and asking people to maybe reflect on. Yeah, it's, it's actually fascinating because I've heard the, the sort of racism that it is satirizing. Um, described mm-hmm. as West Wing racism, which is quite clever, I think, given the casting of Bradley Whitford yeah, as the, exactly. uh, the patriarch or the, the sub-patriarch of this sort of white uh, West Wing racist family. But it, it is a, it's sort of a fascinating point of view because I would know people, and to be fair, most of the people that I talk to of my generation, and I'm hesitant to generalize because obviously we all live in bubbles and things like Facebook and Twitter feeds have made bubbles um, increasingly sort of isolated. So when I say that I think that people of my generation are probably more aware of it, I, I'm probably generalizing horribly, I think based upon things like, say, the Brexit result or the US election. But I think that when you look at people like my parents, to my parents, for example, being racist 
would consist of using, say, the N-word or, or singling somebody out because of the color of their skin explicitly through language, um, as opposed to through, as you, you said, microaggressions or through little ticks that, being honest, sometimes I suspect even the person responsible for them doesn't realize, although it's, it's quite clear in Get Out that, that they do realize what they're doing in some places. Um, but I think that there is something fascinating in exploring that aspect of, of a racism that is associated with liberal white people, with people who, and it's, it's a great gag that recurs several times throughout the film, people who would have voted for Obama for a third term if they could have, uh, which is, is kind of like one of the things I think the film is sort of getting at, this idea that by electing Obama, uh, the United States, and I, actually I, you, you mentioned specifically in terms of like cultural context, because I, I do think that there obviously is a massive difference between, say, the States and, and the UK and stuff. But I, I do think that this is, is something that is, is, is arguably just as true, not just as true, but is arguably true elsewhere as well. But this idea that by electing the United States, by electing Barack Obama, the United States sort of absolved itself, perhaps, of its, its sins that, you know, America was. And I, you hear this term, you don't hear it as often in 2017 uh, as you did in, say, 2014 or 2015, but that the US is now post-racial, um, that sort of thing, you know? Uh, I think that... that get out really sort of skewers that absolutely i think it's like it's a very kind of benevolent form of racism that it's looking at where um i think it, it's almost like people who go out of their way to show say a black person that they're so completely okay with their being there and they're so supportive of them that they actually you know they make them a bit uncomfortable because they're being so overt in it whereas if it were you know, another white person, arguably, they wouldn't feel the need to be perhaps so vocal in their support. Um, and I think, like you say, that that whole aspect throughout the, the film where they mentioned Barack Obama and there's a reference to Tiger Woods and I think to Jesse Owens as well. You know, there's just that kind of constant sense of, oh, because like we're really supportive of these people, we're, we're obviously living in a, in a post-racial society or like that is a problem that no longer afflicts people. And it is interesting to look at it from a generational standpoint, as you mentioned, because I think, you know, for my parents' generation, it would be very much the same. It would be a very kind of vocal form of racism that they would think of when they hear that word in much the same way. I think that when they hear the word sexism, they think of like Mad Men era sexism, where it's very kind of in your face Over. almost. Yeah. Um, whereas I think in this day and age, those kind of issues have become much more internalized because there's there's kind of this implicit understanding that you can't say it out loud, but a lot of people maybe still have those messages in their heads and it affects their behaviors and, and the way that they interact with people in ways that, again, they may not be aware of, but are still kind of damaging and make people feel very uncomfortable. And I think um, that's one thing I liked in the film, that um, when Chris is kind of around a majority group of white people, he seems very if not necessarily nervous and kind of hesitant, like he's not quite sure how to interact with them. And then anytime he comes across another person of color, he, he seems to become instantly much more laid back and his language seems to flow that much better. And I think it's um, one comment that I, I that I read in the film actually saw that as potentially problematic because it implies that he himself is is being a little bit racist in that sense. But I'm not sure I, I, I view it in the same way. Um, I just thought it was interesting to, to note that he kind of waits to see how they treat him before he decides how to respond to them. Whereas with another person of color, he seems to be much more kind of relaxed or at least seems to go with the flow a bit more. Well, there's a moment with, with Georgina, the, the family's, uh, the Armitage's black maid, uh, when she's in the bedroom with him, where he, he confesses that it's just when there's so many white people around, I get nervous. And uh, Georgina responds with, with that iconic, no, 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 no scene. Um, 
which which is great and really off-putting and obviously it, it becomes something completely different once you get to the end and once you discover what exactly the armitages are doing and who exactly georgina is but i think that there is this sense of and, and you said i think you hit, hit the nail on the head there when you're talking about like how important it is to show how not racist you are how accepting you are as opposed to actually being not racist and being accepting like performative i think is probably the best word for it and it's something that's quite appropriate and quite underscored like there are a number of scenes in the film that that repeatedly sort of set the the sense that like chris is basically being party to a performance that he's or being an audience to to a performance of which he's he's not aware of or which he doesn't fully understand or which you know it is basically deceptive to him so for example when he goes upstairs at one point at the party everybody stops chattering and just sort of follows him their eyes follow him upstairs or there's there's a great scene uh with with his girlfriend when she's on the phone with with his male friend uh basically after he's disappeared and the phone conversation is very emotive and very sort of engaged uh but the way that the shot the way that it's performed um she's basically just sitting there dressed entirely in white sort of staring into space a rose is sort of you know detached completely from this it's it's all just an act I think that the Get Out really captures that very, very well. Yeah, I would agree. And I think what I found um, kind of interesting about that was to see the difference um, where it shows you kind of Chris's reaction to it, which, you know, is maybe a bit more hesitant and nervous. But then anytime he's speaking to his friend on the phone, the friend is instantly just like, there is something weird there. Like, you need to, like, get out, essentially. You need to you need to leave. Like, there's something creepy there. And he's kind of like, oh, you know, I'm not sure because I think, you know, obviously I, I can't speak to, to what it would be like to experience that as a person of color. But um, I think that there is that kind of human sense where you sort of feel like, oh, things, you know, they're, they're just not the way they seem. You know, I know it seems a bit weird, but I'm probably just being a bit paranoid. And then, you know, it, the film kind of just turns that in its head and it's like, no, sometimes like your paranoia is tingling because they really are out to get you. And that's something, you know, you can trust your instincts in that regard. And I thought it was interesting, actually, so just remembering something um, that the film opens, like the opening scene kind of really overtly shows a, a black man being kind of kidnapped or dragged away um and in a way that like you know when you see him later on in the film you don't even immediately twig that it's him but that kind of declaration of intent right from the off where you know that person kind of stops their car and turns around and goes out of their way to, to grab him and take him away it's like you know that just that sense of paranoia and fear is entirely justified you know there's never a moment i suppose where it feels like oh things might actually be all right you know no it's it's always going to be bad which is is something that sort of jumped out at me about it because I I don't know if you watch uh, Blackish, which is is sort of like it, it's a sitcom um, about about a black, three generations of a black family, and they they've done a number of really great episodes, uh, but one of the ones they did, uh, which was immediately after Trump got elected, and it was basically uh, the 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 lead character sitting down with his his white coworkers, and they were basically they were talking about how they were shocked and appalled and all this sort of stuff that Trump got elected and that th this could happen in this day and age that people could be so blind to somebody who was so racist and who was so sexist and stuff and he he basically makes the case that look he's to, to these people who who convince themselves they live in a post-racial and sort of post-sexist united states this is a shock but but for him he's sort of accepted that you know america might be great and might be wonderful and might be brilliant and he loves it very very much but sometimes he's reconciled himself to the fact that he will occasionally wake up and realize that it doesn't love him back as much as he would like it to. I think Get Out really sort of taps into that, which is like the sense that like Chris is, is deeply uncomfortable and he's trying not to be deeply uncomfortable, but sometimes he's right to be deeply, deeply uncomfortable. 
And I think that's sort of, that's very provocative. I think that's, that's very powerful. I think it's very, very effective. Yeah. And I think, I, I thought it was interesting that the film chose to kind of link that, that, that characteristic of his behavior with, you know, his own past experiences where, you know, they, that whole suggestion that his mother died and he kind of wasn't paying attention or didn't like go out to look for her when he could have. And, and you know, how he feels so much guilt over that. And the way I think um, the film depicts it as having made him perhaps a little bit numb in certain situations where he's not really sure how to act because he feels like maybe if he seeks something out, then there will be a discovery of bad news which or, or something terrible will happen, which obviously is kind of the way the film goes. Um, but I thought, you know, I really liked the way the film kind of linked maybe the fact that he's a little bit hesitant to probe deeper or, or really trust his instincts because, you know, he has this past experience where when I suppose something bad happened, he didn't consciously seek it out. And it's just led to him becoming a little bit more hesitant, I suppose, in these situations. Yeah. Well, that's sort of like, cause I mean, one of the things that's remarkable about, about this as a directorial debut and as, as like a, the first feature length film from, I think, and I love the fact that it's advertised from the mind of Jordan Peele, uh, given where the film goes. But like there's this wonderful thematic through line through the film uh, that plays into this idea or sort of, I'm not sure even sure you call it a thematic through line as much as a recurring motif, but this idea of uh, staying awake and staying alert and watching. So for example, obviously the, the opening credits, um, after that opening scene, that wonderful opening scene, which is done in like a long take. I really love, I love that it's done in a long take that's shot in such a way that you don't notice. It's not a showy long take. It's just like, okay, you're, you're in confident directorial hands now. Uh, but there's even after that, there's the, the, the Swahili music, uh, which is the, the music that plays. And I think it plays throughout the film repeatedly. It plays at both the end and at certain points when Chris is getting uncomfortable. And it's a Swahili verse that translates loosely as, um, brother, listen to the ancestors, run, you need to run far, listen to the truth, brother, listen to the ancestors, run, run, to save yourself, listen to the ancestors. Um, and there's this sort of this this sort of primal sense of that. But even even after the music transitions, and again, I love that the music transitions on the music supervisor credit, which I think is perhaps a nod to Tarantino's, was it Pulp Fiction, where he does something similar? It, it goes to, uh, was it Childish Gambino's uh, Redbone, uh, which has the chorus, which is literally Stay Woke, um, which, which Peel chose specifically for that Stay Woke. And there's this motif throughout of like, Chris is a, a photographer and he has this eye and this sort of ability to observe that lets him sort of see what's going on. And, you know, the person who eventually chooses to uh, purchase Chris is, is a man who's blind and who I want your eyes is the actual word that he uses. But there's this also this idea that like even at the climax, like Chris is is knocked out and sort of incapacitated. And the way that he gets out of the situation that he's in, nice title drop there, is that basically he manages to literally stay woke by refusing to be subdued into unconsciousness, which I think is a it's a very clever sort of way of tying theme directly to action in in, in a way that's very alert and very sort of savvy. Mm -hmm. And it, it would be almost it would play almost as parody, except that it, it's done so very, very well, I think. Yeah. I think so. I think I'd, I think I'd made a note actually to discuss some aspects of the music because that was something um, that I noticed, like where the music seemed to be played kind of very loudly. And I think those pieces in particular, where perhaps it, it's almost like um, what is that? 
like I remember reading this article before and I can't remember which film it might be. It might be The Fog or something where essentially like there's either a, a piece of music or a group of people shouting something in another language. And they, they are essentially kind of warning you about something that eventually happens in the film. So if you don't speak the language, you're oblivious to it. Um, but similarly, like something in this where, you know, if you're really paying attention to those aspects of the music and hell, even if you don't know Swahili, but if you know perhaps that Childish Gambino song, then that's kind of something that would stick with you throughout and then you would see it pay off in that way and I, I really liked that um that aspect of it at the end like you say that he kind of literally stays woke or like the moment that he sort of takes active action to, to free himself it's it's kind of linking it up with him making a conscious decision to be like right I'm going to do something instead of you know kind of waiting and hoping and seeing if it won't turn out as bad as he thinks it is. Yeah, well, I mean, it's actually funny you should mention the, the soundtrack and the, the sort of different languages that they use, because apparently um, Peel, well, first of all, Peel wanted the soundtrack to be explicitly from uh, Chris's point of view. So, for example, um, Abel's, Michael Abel's, who composed the music, he had a piece of music that he'd written for the, there's a party scene later in the movie where a bunch of mostly old white people and, and one Asian guy. Um, show up and basically interact with Chris in a, in a way that's completely awkward and forced and stuff. But there, he composed a piece of music for that that I think he modeled on, say, Bach um, uh, or like uh, Bolero or whatever. Uh, but Peel basically vetoed it because he thought that would be the music that the, the white people would be hearing during the scene, but that would not be the music that Chris would be hearing, hearing during the scene. And what he wanted originally was he wanted the, the opening music that's done in Swahili that we talked about there a moment ago. He wanted that uh, originally to be uh, delivered using the language of the original, the slaves that were brought over to America to get this sort of this sense of something primal within Chris, almost sort of, um, I don't know, sort of summoning it or sort of speaking to him like this, this primal core ex experience uh, sort of in, in, in his memory. Um, but apparently, sadly, um, Michael Abels couldn't find a way to make those languages uh, lyrical enough. Uh, to compose a song around them, but uh, but I do think you're you're right that it is that that's sort of like speaking a language you don't hear, uh, but it's a language of your ancestors, and I think that's very like the the level of attention to something as as seemingly innocuous as the the opening theme music that plays I think for about two and a you know two minutes over the credits, that's that's an astounding level of attention just in terms of like form and technique and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's exactly the kind of thing that, you know, if you see a film like this on repeat viewings, um, those things kind of start to stand out to you a little bit more. And whereas, you know, they might go over your head in your initial viewing, you start to see how there are different themes and aspects that are linked up in that way. And I think it's a sign of, um, you know, a really kind of conscious and engaged filmmaker. Not that I suppose many filmmakers aren't engaged when they're making films, but someone who's really kind of thought not just about like the story and and how it's all put together, but also the whole experience for the audience and, and trying to craft the film in such a way that you really draw them into the, the protagonist's mind as much as possible, or at least give them a sense of what he might be going through. I think it makes it that much more effective because it feels very visceral and, and very much like it, it just sort of seems to amp up the tension that much more. It does, because uh, it flows. It flows very well on, on first viewing. Like, I mean, I, I think sort of like when I watched the first time, it flows almost perfectly. Like, and it, it's weird because it takes like the movie takes a really strong left turn in its in its final act when you find out exactly 
what the Armitages are, which is that they're this this strange cult that seems to believe themselves. Was it we are the gods trapped in mortal cocoons? Um, as like Bradley Whitford is staring into the fire, which reflects in his gigantic glasses, which is just a great bit of framing and, co- and scene composition, but would seem like an out of left field turn, except for the fact that I think, I think it's it's all set up and it all just flows so easily and so logically and so rationally. Like, I mean, you mentioned even the bit with uh, with talking about Chris's mother and how he talks about the experience of knowing, discovering that she was hit in a hit and run and she was she was alive in the gutter and, and he went back for her and how that that like that little detail kind of dovetails through the film in, in a number of different ways. So it comes up, first of all, when he starts to think that the Armitage family is really creepy and he, he tells Rose about it and uh Basically, he says, I want to leave. And she says, okay, are you, are you going to leave without me? And he's like, no, I'm not leaving you. I felt bad about leaving my mother. I'm not leaving you here. Which, first of all, turns, turns out to be a hilarious, uh, hilarious miscalculation and misreading of the scene on his part. Uh, but then later on, even at the climax, as he's trying to get out of the, um, out of the, the Armitage estate, he, finds, he hits Georgina with the car. And again, he can't leave her. He goes back and he picks her up. And then he he gets her in the car, and again it turns out to be a, a miscalculation. But it's it's such a clever, like just a nice kind of character through line, like a sense of Chris as a person and how that fits. Actually, just in terms of now that I've, I've sort of mentioned that, I do think that would you consider Get Out to be a really cynical film? Because like the two times the Chris g- gets a chance to go back and to like fix the mistake that he made with his mother, i.e., to to try and save somebody or to bring somebody with him it comes back and ends up horribly 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 biting him in the ass do you think that that's like an intentional point that that jordan peele is making like is is it is get out a cynical film about the human condition um i i don't think so at least i i don't think i would read it that way i think i saw kind of the use of that particular aspect of his past in terms of his decisions as just a way to to contextualize i suppose the way he acts and and why he decides to do what he does. Like when you mention him, you know, kind of hitting Georgina and then deciding to go back and, and pick her up. Like, I mean, you know, in, in 99% of horror movies, you probably just keep going and the person wouldn't even look in their rearview mirror. But I think to have something like that, you know, not just, I think it makes his decision much more interesting because it isn't just the idea that maybe he feels a bit bad because he's hit, you know, another person. And of course it's another black person. So there's that kind of dimension to it, but also the fact that, you and know, also she's a victim of, of what yeah. the Armitages have been doing as well. Yeah, exactly. But I think also the fact that, you know, on a very personal level, this kind of brings up really bad memories for him such that he feels like he has to confront them in this way. And then the fact that, you know, it doesn't pay off for him isn't, isn't nice, obviously. But I think in a way to me, it, it kind of makes his character a bit more believable because it just seems like what that character would do in those circumstances because of his past. Um, although, you know, I'm sure other people might, might read it in a more cynical way, but I think to me, it, it makes him seem more, more human or more realistic to my mind. All right. No, no, it's, it's just, I find it strange that he sort of like, that he makes the decision twice first with, with Rose, uh, which like, and the fact that he waits for Rose, uh, to leave means that, you know, she gets to trap him because it turns out the big twist in the film, uh, which Alison Williams lied about to all her friends and family is that Rose is, is complicit in this with the rest of her family. Um, which means that basically she gets to catch him off guard. If he had just left without her, he would be in a much, much safer position. And sort of, so I, I do wonder if there is a sense of sort of cynicism to that, where it's, it's where Peel's basically like, well, look, you, you need to be, you take care of yourself. Um, and that's, that's the way that you get out of here. Although I suppose 
the very ending of the film with with Rod coming to save him probably sort of weighs against that. Which, by the way, did you did you watch this with a crowd? Um, I well, not actually. I, I went kind of to a mid afternoon screening, so I'd say there were maybe about twenty people there. Um, but it was a big screen, so we were kind of evenly dispersed. It wasn't. I was kind of hoping that it would be a big group because I think you know when you have a large cinema audience like the the kind of chorus of gasps at certain points is always amusing to hear. Um, but no, it, it was a pretty small crowd, unfortunately. I know. I, I got to see it. I got to see it twice with a big crowd and once with a small crowd, and it works. It works well both ways, and, and there's something to be said for like watching it in, in a reasonably small crowd, but with a big crowd, and it's kind of it's a it's a demonstration of how well Peel sort of understands the the horror genre that he's building this this thing around. But like the the pacing of the gasps, and then then you have the awkward laughter after. Like there's there's a really good fake scare, for example, where. Chris is walking through the house and Georgina walks behind him and there's like the Bernard Herman sort of violin sort of scare chord. Um, and everybody gasps in the audience and then we realize what's happened and we laugh. But even at the end, right, which is, and the ending is is absolutely brilliant, which is is basically Chris has, has sort of discovered what the Armitages are up to. He's broken free and he's sort of, he's killed most of the Armitages um, and Rose is, is lying shot on the ground, but she's not dead yet. The car has crashed. Um, and so he, he goes over and he's sort of, he's over her almost dead body. And there's the sound, there's this, the sound of a police siren and flashing lights sort of in the distance approaching. And the way that it's shot, it, it, the way it's constructed is very clever because as, as an audience, like given the film's themes about what it's like to be uh, sort of a, a, an African-American in America, sort of in, in a culture where there is this, this level of veiled racism, like you're all but expecting for like a police officer, the police officer at the start who wanted Chris's ID to arrive and to blame him for like the burning house and the dead bodies and everything like that. And then it turns out to be Rod, um, who is TSA. They get they get it done. Uh, and the crowd <laughs> just goes wild. It, it was it was it's fantastic. It's it's so brilliantly um, just constructed and paced. Like it's it's a great like we, we talk about the message a lot, but it's a really, really good horror film. And really, really good horror film is something that when you watch with a crowd of people, it just, it like plays the audience like an orchestra, you know? Um, yeah, absolutely. And I do, I like, I'm really um, glad that the ending kind of took the turn that it did because I, you know, like I expect most people when you see the, or when you hear the siren and you see the police car pull up, your mind instantly kind of goes to one place, especially with the particular background of school um not school shootings uh police shootings in the u.s um and i think i i don't know how true this is but i do remember reading somewhere that um jordan peele had originally wanted it to end in a very dark note and that chris would have been arrested for the murders um uh, that a cop would have actually shown up and kind of assumed that he was responsible for all this and arrested him but he chose for whatever reason to make it lighter and have his friend come and you know help him escape um and i'm kind of glad he went down that road because I feel like although that like the original kind of darker ending, if if that's the ending that he was considering, um, it would have been very kind of true to life in one sense, because you can absolutely imagine that happening. Um, but it also, I think, just would have been and it almost would have been too much, I think, after everything else that had happened. in the film. A very cruel punchline. Yeah, especially for, for that particular character, I think, who, you know, not that you could blame anyone in the situation, but he's already been through so much exactly. Um, I wanted to mention something about the police scene from earlier in the film, actually, because um, um, that part where, where essentially a cop or what, what you call it, Rose and Chris's car has hit a deer and then um, a police car shows up to kind of ask if they need assistance and so on. Um, and he asks to see Chris's driving license, even though Rose is the one who was driving. And she goes on this kind of big 
almost self-righteous spiel about insisting that he doesn't have to provide identity and so on. But um, Why would you want to look at that? I was driving, etc. You know, exactly. Um, and, you know, I had kind of read that very much on the surface of it as an example of, of one of those kind of aggressions that people of color face in the US. But something I read in, in one of the reviews I came across, which I thought was interesting, was that Someone suggested, um, and I think this is just that person's interpretation of events, but it's an interesting one. Um, they suggested that um, if you look at that scene in hindsight, you'd almost wonder, did the police a man in question want to see Chris's ID? Because clearly there's a history of black men going missing in the area, A. And B, was Rose so adamant about not providing or, or the adamant that Chris wouldn't provide his identity, not as a kind of show of resistance to racism, but because if an incident report was filed, which had her name and his on it, would that draw suspicion back to her if he inevitably disappeared? And I'm not sure how much I agree with that, but I thought it was an interesting interpretation of the scene if you wanted to look at it that way. So I wanted to throw it out there and see what you thought. No, I think I think that's that's quite clear. Because I think there's a lot in the film that works very well at sort of foreshadowing and sort of setting up ideas that pay off down the line. So for example... There's um, you're talking about that scene with the police officer, but there's also the fact that like the introductory shot of Chris um, is himself. It's the only undressed scene of Chris in the film where he's sort of standing in front of a mirror examining his own body, which I think sort of sets up the idea of black bodies, um, which is something that comes up much later in the film, that the Armitages are literally exploiting black bodies. And sort of obviously that ties into to other ideas of, like slavery and exploitation, stuff like that. But even then, at the same time, you're cross-cutting that with... Uh, this, the introductory shot of Rose, which is Rose at a pastry bar trying to choose which one she wants, which becomes a much creepier scene later on when you discover that what she's actually been doing is she's been Googling NCAA prospects and picking which one she wants to have of those. But I mean, even in terms of like when um, Bradley, when Armitage, when the Armitage, the father of the Armitage, Dean, is giving sort of uh, Chris the tour of the house. Um, there's all these sort of little pointers and nods like he's talking about how uh, you know his his mother loved the kitchen and so they try to keep a little piece of her in it and the camera sort of pans to Georgina who you later discover is actually um, his mother uh, just her brain's been sort of located in there or the bit where he talks about for example how his father was beaten by Jesse Owens um, to qualify for the Olympics in 1936 and he he almost got over it i think is how dean phrases it and then later on in the night there's a really wonderful this is the scene we're sort of talking about with the get out challenge which is the scene where chris is staring into the darkness and then all of a sudden the um the sort of the groundskeeper comes running at him really really fast and then turns at the last minute and you sort of later find out that the grandfather's brain is in that body so what he's he's still trying to beat jesse owens uh that sort of stuff or even like the bit where, where dean's talking about how there's black mold in the basement uh, when what they are literally doing in the basement is molding black people. Um, or or even just the, the really bit where he shows Chris these, th these babies that he picked up in, I can't remember whether it was Nepal or Bali or somewhere like that. And he's like, it's, it's so good to be able to appreciate other people's culture. Um, which is, is just like, um, given that, that the film sort of evolves into this idea of like what rich white people wanting to inhabit black bodies or sort of like fetishizing black bodies or wanting to possess and control black bodies. It's all like, it's remarkable how much of that is, is laid out, even in a sort of a jokey sort of self-aware way early on. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if like, if Peel had said when he was doing that scene with the, with Rose and with the police officer that he was sort of doing something that he knew that when you go back and you rewatch it, you, you look at it in that way. Cause I do think, I, I do think there is sort of a, although then again, I suppose like there's an argument to be made that, get out is is not necessarily the most 
realistic of of horror films in that it's a movie about brain transplants and hypnotism and stuff like that and you get the sense that even even regarding people's skepticism if that many black people had disappeared um but were appearing in people's photographs and social media or whatever you imagine the armitage's scheme would be ruffled at some point but uh yeah no i i, I can see i can sort of read i can understand that reading of it you know? mm -hmm. and i think it's a, it's a very a good reflection on the film itself that it leaves it self open to those kind of readings where everything you know up to a certain point is almost a little bit ambiguous and you're kind of questioning yourself like is this as bad as it seems or is it not that like when you go back over it and you think oh wow like that actually is you know pointing in a completely different direction to what i i thought at the time um and i thought it was just um interesting thinking about the character of rose as well because i really I've read kind of some different opinions on her where some people feel like, you know, the way she was going to be signposted quite early on and other people kind of felt like they didn't really know what was coming. I think I wasn't quite sure how to read her myself just because I was wondering because there was clearly a context of brainwashing in the family. I, I thought, like, have the kids as well been brainwashed? Like maybe Rose herself is has been involved in this before, but in a weird way, I don't know, her brain has been wiped. And so she keeps luring these unwishing guys back home but doesn't actually know what's going on. And then, of course, it turns out that she's completely complicit in it so yeah which i think in one sense is, is probably a bit better because it kind of unites the whole family in this kind of evil scheme um but yeah i think um like what you were saying about how it's, it's maybe after a certain point it's maybe not necessarily realistic but i think up to a certain point it does prey on perhaps manners of behavior and, and expectations and stuff that people do recognize and then kind of spirals off into a, a terrible place mm -hmm sort of a heightened sense i mean was it peel has described it as a so he he wants to first of all jordan peel he's like he's released this it's done phenomenally well he wants to do four more of these social thrillers which i i would be totally on board with um i would i would love to see four more movies like get out uh but he sort of he's talked about how he modeled it um obviously i mean there's shades of was it uh, guess who's coming to dinner is the obvious point of reference uh in in some respect but it's sort of it's that intersected with say rosemary's baby and with the Stepford Wives uh, as well. Um, and I think there's sort of... Because let's sort of talk about the way that it blends comedy and, and horror. Because it, it is... It's a, it's, a scare, it's a scary film, but it's not necessarily like a, a scary and like a jump scare sort of way. Because I think there's one or maybe two jump scares in it. But it's that sense of unsettlingness that you talked about. But I mean, it's also a very funny film. Yeah. I think um, having the character of Chris's friend kind of be involved even tangentially, like when he's speaking to him on the phone. Rod. Yeah, it, it just it really kind of lightens up proceedings when you're getting to a stage where like it, it does seem very tense and, and, you know, very uncomfortable that he kind of calls up his friend and the friend kind of launches into a big rant about how, you know, white people are always trying to make slaves out of us. And, you know, in, in, in especially ways, sex lives. Yeah, exactly. In ways that, you know probably seem very kind of light and comedic. And yet, you know, in, in, a, in a sense, I suppose it completely proves what was the way the film goes on kind of proves his fears to be correct. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, the, the comedy is kind of interesting because I think a lot of the um, the horror in it is done in kind of a way that's very insidious. It's a way that, you know, it's not like jump scares. It's not necessarily like gore or any of the other things that, that people might associate with horror films. But something that, you know, the, the kind of setup of it reminds me of is um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers in one sense, that like, you know, you don't really know who to trust. And there's that, obviously that very direct reference of, of people kind of taking over your body and yeah and, and changing you know the way you act and your, all of your behavior because of that but also just that sense of like not really knowing who to trust and and who's being authentic and how kind of in in many ways you know that the white group of people that come to the party of the house are very overt in in, in how threatening they are like I mean I, I don't 
it's something that maybe at the time you're thinking, oh, well, you know, they don't realize how kind of awkward and unsettling they're being. But then in hindsight, you think it's like, no, they, they actually know exactly what they're doing. And because it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. and it doesn't make it, it that because he's not leaving. Exactly. It just makes it that much creepier that like not only are they being kind of threatening in a very specific way, but they also don't feel like there's any risk to them in being threatening. So, yeah, I mean. I actually really liked the, um, I say I really liked, uh, I need to be very careful about this in this film, but I, I quite liked the the way in which the film sort of dealt with the character who does. So there's like the scene where they have the, they all bid on Chris, which is done remarkably well because it's oh, God, anyone yeah. for bingo, Dean says. Um, and I didn't quite get what it was originally until after I'd seen the film, and I sort of processed it. But it's like a silent auction where people are bidding using bingo cards, which is like if you can imagine the most terrifying but also most upper class white old age sort of uh, thing in the world. It's like auction bingo. Um, but the guy who does eventually win him is played by Stephen Root. And Stephen Root's character is is kind of interesting in that he's different from the other party members. Because the other party members are really, really overtly racist. To the point where, like, one of the guys is like, well, yes, white white skin has been in fashion for hundreds of years, but black is the new black. Or you've got, like, the woman asking, is black really better in bed? Mm-hmm. Um, and you've got, like, the golfer who's like, oh, it's okay, I know Tiger. That sort of thing. But you have Stephen Root, who basically is literally, and I like this, who literally considers himself to be colorblind. Um, who's quite happy to exploit and to sort of profit off what they're doing to Chris, but who insists that you don't lump him in with the other people because he's not as overtly horrible as they are. His racism isn't as explicit, so therefore he doesn't see himself as not as bad a person, despite the fact that he's the one who's ultimately going to profit from uh, from Chris having his sort of head cut open and his brain transplanted in. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I found that character quite, quite interesting as well, because like, it's like you say, the way he's set up is being kind of almost, if not necessarily at odds, then certainly apart from the other people around him. You know, he's sitting apart from them and he actually seems to appreciate, you know, Chris's art and knows a little bit about him. And it's not just kind of this surface level interest um, that that's really kind of quite problematic. Um, but then also I was wondering if that character would come into play at a later stage, if he would be kind of a benevolent type. And then, of course, when you have the stinger that you know, not only is he in on it, but, you know, he's the one who's going to be essentially taking over Chris's body. And then I really like the way in in that part at the end where Chris is in the basement and um, he's speaking to this man on the television. He says something like, you know, oh, you know, it's not about your being black. I don't care what color you are. I just want your eyes kind of thing. And I think it's um, having a, a comment like that in there um, is really quite striking because, you know, you'd wonder in one sense, why this family and the group of people around them felt the need to prey on black people specifically. But then this one guy kind of, you know, links it back into that wider sense of racism where it's like, oh, you know, I'd be like this to you, basically, if you were white or if you were any other ethnicity, um, when, you know, almost in a way that they become blind to their own prejudice, that like they specifically treat this group of people differently, but in such a way that they don't even notice they're doing it. Um, so, yeah, I, I thought that character was an interesting foil. And, and having him kind of in there as the one who's who seems like maybe he's, he's not quite the same and maybe you can rely on him to a certain extent. And then, of course, he's exactly the same as everyone else. You know, that's almost a statement in itself, like it is with Rose, I suppose, where the ones who seem like maybe they're OK also turn out to be very complicit in their own way. Just as bad or or even worse because yeah. you don't expect them. Exactly. People who seem like allies. Yeah, that's exactly it's It's the 
I mean, I think it's, yeah, it's it Roxanne Gay who's talked about how, yeah, the, basically the, the thing about the danger of allyship is that white people tend to think it immunizes them to legitimate criticism or to, that it entitles them to, to speak on behalf of or to assume a higher moral position, um, as opposed to recognizing that, like, allyship is about listening rather than, you know, speaking over. Um, but I think one of the things that sort of, like, that jumped out at me when he said this, I was kind of, I was watching this and I was thinking, and I... I'm wary about reading too much into this because, um, again, I'm, I feel the need to stress I'm a white guy from Ireland. Um, so when I talk about the racial context of Get Out, I understand that I'm sort of maybe a little bit on shaky ground and stuff. But I do wonder if, like, one of the things that the film talks about when it talks about, like, it's literally about the control of black bodies. But it's also about, like, the Stephen Root character talks about how he wants Chris's eye. And I'm wondering if there's sort of like a broader theme. And it's something that I've seen sort of play out in, in, in media in, in other respects over the past couple of years. This idea of like the ownership of, of like black culture and black stories and black bodies as something that has traditionally been exploited by white interests. So, for example, like uh, white studios releasing these films or whatever, or, you know, write, white writers writing black characters and all this sort of stuff or, or white directors sort of focusing on, on black bodies and this idea of like authorship and ownership and when Stephen Root says that he wants Chris's eye as a photographer, I do wonder if there's a sense of that sort of cynicism there, perhaps like that, like Peel maybe as as a creator, or or if he's wondering about how studios and and Hollywood organizations that are traditionally like they're they're very white in terms of um, their ownership and their management and their sort of their perspectives about how they treat say black artists um, like photographers or like writers or like directors and stuff like that is there an element of exploitation to those relationships is sort of what I was wondering um, I was kind of I, I, I don't know maybe I'm reading too much into it but. no I, th I think that's that's something that's definitely worth kind of bearing in mind and I think you know from from everything else that we've talked about the amount of kind of effort and, and conscious thought that's gone into the construction of this film you know I think Jordan Peele kind of maybe does imply some of that in a sense um, and I, you know, it's it's interesting to consider in a wider context of, of like you say, the way kind of black media is treated in um, in the film industry and in the entertainment circle and so on, that there is that kind of wider issue that, you know, you're not really interested or there's a certain type of person who's not very interested in it unless they can monetize it in some way or use it to, even if not necessarily enrich themselves in financial terms, then something that would almost give them, you know, like they're looking for for credits or something because you know they've gone out of their way to support this this black artist without really taking on board maybe what they're trying to say and so on um what's that great line it's from the the luke cage um luke cage on netflix there a little while ago and they, they basically because it was it was managed by coker and there was a conscious effort to turn to reappropriate a character being created by white creators and, and white artists and there's a wonderful line in the premiere where they're saying that like for for black lives to matter black voices must also matter and there's a sense of like taking ownership of things that maybe had not been or maybe had been sort of like astute or exploited and i think that yeah maybe maybe i think get out is part of that perhaps no i think that like that that reading to my mind seems fair and i think also um there's that whole aspect with um you know the wider issue of of like the oscars boycott and so on because they were perceived as not um supporting people of color enough and then you know, I think the film industry does kind of get this sort of reputation of giving itself massive pats on the back for doing the absolute 
bare minimum of kind of effort. And I've seen some people write about this in the context of, for example, Beauty and the Beast recently, where you know the the live action version had oh, a gay the, character. Exclusively gay moment. Yeah, and and even if you if you I haven't seen Beauty and the Beast now, but I'm thinking of another example of it recently was in Star Trek Beyond, where there was this reference to Zulu having a husband and a child, and yet in the film itself, it is almost literally a blink and you'll miss it kind of moment. Um, and I suppose there is that that wider conversation of like you know, do people when, when they insert, even if with the best of intentions, when they include these kind of aspects in films, um, do they feel like, you know, they're doing a great good without maybe listening or engaging with this as, as well as they could? So I think, you know, I really would not be surprised if that was kind of a conscious meaning that had also been encoded in some way into Get Out, because it is definitely part of kind of the wider narrative around not just race relations, but specifically within the entertainment industry in the U.S., um, and bearing in mind that, you know, Jordan Peele has noted that, you know, this is very much a response, I suppose, to the to what has been happening in the US and that whole idea of the post-racial society that you mentioned earlier and and how it's kind of a fallacy and, and just not very true, not not in relation to people's lived experiences. No, I can, I can sort of agree with that. And it's funny you should mention the, the Beauty and the Beast example, because I actually I have seen it and I would have missed the moment if it had not been pointed out to me afterwards. Like it's it's that subtle a moment. And I do like I think somebody pointed out. I think it may have been uh, Caroline Side over at the AV Club that when they when they inserted that exclusively gay moment, they did it at the cost of taking out all the gay subtext involving Lumiere, for example, um, who is now quite pointedly and explicitly straight. But yeah, there, there is a sense of when you talk about pop culture, and you talk about representation that even now, which is what, 2017, you're still at the stage where representation is treated as something token as opposed to something that's expected or as opposed to something that's a default. Like, you expect that when you're talking about including a, a gay character, for example, in Beauty and the Beast, it's not something that's that's just there because, like, it's part of the experience of people who live or because it, it's part of, like, it's it's representating... Uh, representating? Because it's representing um, a, a sort of a more diverse range of opinions that, that sort of broadens story possibilities. And that just represents how people actually are. It's, no, it's something special and something different and something... Like that, that deserves comment of itself, even even though it's yeah, as you said, it's it's the bare minimum. It's just it's uh, it's sort of it is it is shocking to think that like this is 2017, and this is sort of where we are. But then again, I suppose a lot of things are quite shocking in a sense of this is 2017, and and this is where we are. I know. But um, let's let's talk about like the the sort of the, the comedy aspects of it, or the sort of like the because. I was, I was thinking about like the, the comedy sense of it and Peel has sort of talked about this in interviews himself where he's talked about how he started out well he's, he's sort of he's best known for his work with uh, Key and Peel, and basically they it's his comedy sketch show um, and one of the things that they do on it is they tend to do like pastiches and references and stuff like that um, and you can see a lot of I think what turned out to be Get Out in sketches like for example uh, do you watch Key and Peel actually? No I'm actually not familiar with it it's, it's a type of thing where you know like you see kind of memes and stuff from it across your social media but I don't think I've ever actually seen the sketches themselves because they're they're actually I haven't I don't think I've ever watched a full episode of it to be entirely honest it's one of those things like Amy Schumer it works very well it is that sort of that cut up sort of viral sort of social media craze thing where and i think actually it's, it's interesting to note that like sketch shows which were like a, a sort of a fixture of the like 50s and 60s are now coming back into fashion because they're mm -hmm. they're viral because they can be shared because the information economy is based not on like two hour commitments of time but like two minute commitments of time um so you have like i've seen key and peel sort of through those youtube clips and stuff like that and you can see watching them that the the two of them are very astute in terms of like references and in terms of um, like 
they very clearly like horror cinema and they've always liked horror cinema so for example um they do like was it uh, baby forest which is what if forest whitaker were a baby and also incredibly threatening as a comedy premise um <laughs> or they do what is it they do make a wish which is what if like damien from the omen was a make a wish child for example that sort of thing or what if family matters was actually a dark psycho horror and you can sort of see oh my god yeah. <laughs> Um, you can sort of. I'm gonna have to look some of these up. <laughs> I, uh, well, I will include them in the, in the show notes and stuff. Uh, but they do. They have that sort of like, they're very, they're very well sort of in terms of like understanding how you do things. So in understanding like, mezzanine or sort of composition or framing or pacing or like structuring a scene so that you get the scare or the laugh at just the right moment to make it land. And I think the Get Out has has a lot of that where like. As you talk about like the tension building and mounting, like there's this this wonderful sense of like it understanding like at what level it needs to pitch the the tension in a given scene. Like there's the the wonderful scene where Chris goes under hypnosis uh, with Rose's mother. And that scene is just like it's so perfectly paced because it starts it starts with this sort of uh, light conversation and then sort of segues into this this like he's slowly he's recalling his mother and then all of a sudden he's in a trance. And it's a ridiculous leap to ask the audience to make, but the film sort of gets there because of like how carefully and how meticulously it paced itself, how sort of it, it's sort of, I don't know, just how well constructed it is. Mm -hmm. I think it's, um, it's something I think I, I read in a Jordan Peele interview where he said that although he, his background was mainly in comedy, he felt that there was a lot of overlap between comedy and horror and that so much of it was in things like the pacing and, and trying to make sure that you get like the right moment at the kind of, you know, just the right exact point, essentially. Um, there's a lot in the pacing, there's a lot in the delivery and, and how all of those things are integral, I suppose, to the overall experience. So I think in that sense, having like the comedic background from his perspective is, is probably helpful. But also, I think there's, you know, it seems to me that um, I'm not a massive horror fan, but there's, you know, a lot of films that I would like, nevertheless. And I think a lot of really good horror films do tend to have quite a strong comedic aspect going through them, because sometimes because I think when you have a premise that's maybe inherently a little bit ludicrous or a little bit over the top or or even sometimes just because it feels very like a very human reaction to try and almost lighten the mood to, to help you cope maybe with what you're experiencing. Um, and there's that sense of also disbelief that like, you know, this can't be happening. Like, this is silly. This is ridiculous. This isn't actually going on. Like it's, um, I think it has like that kind of the comedy elements in the film have a very natural place amid everything else that's happening because not only because they help to lighten the mood for the audience, but also for the characters, there's that kind of sense, well, for Chris, I suppose, specifically, um, you know, there's that sense that he's kind of having a moment of release where he's like, oh, you know, it's fine, it's not that bad. And then, of course, you know, it, it isn't it gets actually. Worse. <laughs> yeah, but, um, you know, it, it kind of, I suppose, it, I like the way it's um, depicted to be kind of a means of him sort of getting through the initial really awkward stages and, and kind of maybe like waving it's off some of his worst instincts. Yeah. yeah, and then, of course, the hilarious part is that you know, his friend is much more tuned in and absolutely aware to what's going on, even though he's the one that's kind of presented as the comic relief character. He's like, he's much more incisive, perhaps, or, or more perceptive to, to what's happening um, than Chris is. Well, I mean, in terms of then the horror stuff, because the, the horror, like it's, imagine like telling somebody that you're going to construct what is effectively a, a horror movie about the perils of white liberal racism. It, it sounds like, it sounds quite a daunting task to ask of a director or a writer but one of the things i actually i really really like about it is that it's it's unmistakably like texturally sort of like pacing 
structure, like appearances, even little nods and stuff. It is a horror film through and through. Like, for example, there's the great, uh, there's the recurring bit where, like, Chris's phone has been disconnected from its charger, which is, like, a great 21st century update on, oh, my God, the line's been cut. And in fact, like the way that he shoots the scene of the charger disconnected from the phone is very much like you expect in a horror film, somebody to discover like the frayed ends of the phone that that doesn't have the dial tone on it or something like that. Or even like, was it the Rose's brother playing the ukulele? Um, which is um, like, I'm, I'm going to be honest, Rose's brother was a character I'm not entirely sure what to make of, but I love the shot of him playing the ukulele on the porch as like an update of the deliverance of like playing the the inbred hick racist playing sort of the banjo um on the bridge in deliverance so it's kind of a it's a nice illustration of like how you sort of you haven't necessarily come that far from this idea of sort of prejudice or or like the monster that's sort of lurking in certain parts of america uh, that you haven't gone that far from the the hillbilly playing the banjo till you get the med student playing the ukulele um, in the middle of the family estate. Mm-hmm. Actually, what did you make of Chris's brother? And uh, Joanna, I'm kind of curious. I I wasn't sure what I made of him myself. I I'm not sure the character and kind like I'm not sure he kind of worked for me. But then there was a part of me that was wondering if maybe he was in there to be kind of a more specific foil because the other characters. You know, to my mind, they seem pretty creepy from the off, but I suppose you could also read them as just being a little bit maybe ignorant of the way that they were acting or not really sure of what was going on. Um, Whereas Rose's brother very much comes across from the off as someone who's very aggressive, very threatening. And, you know, there's there's no sense that he's not aware, I suppose, of the way that he's acting. Um, So I think he really kind of clashes with the the other characters in that sense but then i wonder if maybe that's specifically why he was written the way that he was to be a little bit more deranged and and in a sense i suppose i wonder if he was put in there to to be that more kind of boisterous um you know kind of threatening character to almost make it seem like chris is thrown off the scent because he's like oh well you know rose's parents are a bit weird but yeah but they're not as weird as her brother who clearly has severe issues and and the way like even she and and the parents almost are a little bit apologetic about him as it say like oh sorry you know that's just sort of the way that he is whereas you know there's an argument to be made that he is at least being himself and he's not really trying to hide the fact that he's a very prejudiced horrible person um compared to the the more kind of pretentious way the the rest of the family and the other people at the party for instance are acting because i mean that that's the thing like we talked at the start of this about how our parents would define racism different than we would and why we would recognize racism mm-hmm in what say Dean and uh, Dean and Missy do, um, our parents might not. But I think our even our parents would sort of look at Jeremy and go, yeah, the guy who goes with your genetic makeup and composition, you could be a beast. Um, and asking if he got involved in street fights. Maybe, maybe that guy's really racist. Yeah. Um, and I do think that, yeah, I think that Jeremy sort of jarred with me a little bit. Although I did like, and again, like, there's a sense that as with everything else in the film, like Peel put a lot of thought into into Jeremy because there's even stuff like when he talks about wanting to get uh, wanting to get Chris in a headlock at the dinner party. Like it's the exact same headlock that he puts Dre in in, in the teaser scene that we talked about at the start of the film. Mm-hmm. And it's the headlock that he puts him in the climax again. But then like Jeremy talks about how jujitsu is like it's a mind thing. You got to be thinking two, three moves ahead. And then at the climax, how chris defeats jeremy twice is by thinking several moves ahead like the point where when he tries to get out the door and jeremy kicks it he then uses that again to open the door get jeremy to kick it so he can stab jeremy in the leg 
it's it's just weird because Jeremy did sort of stand out to me, even though I can see that he's a, he's somebody who like there was a lot of thought put into what he's doing, and I think Caleb Landry Jones was very very good in that. Like Jeremy's really creepy. Mm-hmm. Jeremy is really really. Creepy. He just has that kind of like wiry, like sort of slightly manic appearance behind the eyes, where you know you sort of wonder is that just their face or is that kind of a, a, an actual show of of like proper aggression you know um and it's yeah it's I don't know sometimes I I was wondering about that bit at the end too where where like you say he had mentioned that whole you need to think ahead and all of this and then I'm wondering if that's almost a comment on I don't know um and this really might be reaching but almost a comment on like complacency then that Chris is able to overcome him because he just kind of naturally assumes his own superiority but then I suppose that doesn't really fit with the way he talks about Chris as being like a a beast (laughs) and you know using all this animalistic um references and so on i think that does and that i think like it suggests that jeremy's well you know first of all underestimates chris but also over overestimates himself like, i think the impression is that chris uh, sorry jeremy is, is far more beastly um in that he is literally just a collection of nerve endings and impulses like when he when he leaves the party after trying to choke like the, it seems like the family sort of targeted african-americans and like so you know uh rose has put in this incredibly intricate sort of honeypot scheme Whereas Jeremy's solution is just to go out in a car, grab them in a headlock, and shove them in the boot. Um, was it? It's the the Stephen Root character describes it as wrangling, which is is a wonderfully uncomfortable phrase that has obvious historical implications. I was just going to say, like, um, even that that you know that scene that we mentioned earlier about um, you know, the the game of bingo, almost <laughs> like in hindsight, that scene just takes on the most horrific implications because I remember at the time because you know I don't think there's dialogue in that no, scene. It's, it's just no, kind it's, of it's all completely um, silent. Yeah, it's a visual. But I remember like seeing kind of the big picture of, of Chris behind um, Dean, yeah. Uh, yeah, behind Dean and kind of thinking that's a bit random. Like, you know, even though I know they're they're not exactly full shell, I was like, that's like weird. Like, how, how are they going to explain that away? And then later on, when you know what the bingo scene is actually about, you're just kind of like, oh, dear God, this is this is literally like latter day slave auction. It's just the most horrific imagery. And the fact that like, you know, there's no talking involved. It's just a scene with like kind of music and visuals and this image of everyone kind of competing with each other it's so understood among them yeah Yeah, but it's also so understood among them that there's no need for verbal clarification you know it's it's unspoken that what they're doing is what they're doing and they all understand it also i noticed because i i I noticed that the the only asian american character at the party um he has a bingo with only yellow stars on it um which is a very very astute and entirely i suspect in character for the armitage's uh, touch when we talk about you mentioned this earlier when you're talking about like rose and her sense of complicity actually because as you said there's there's hypnotism involved there's you know this sort of messing with people's minds involved as a question of how complicit is rose in in what's happening and i think that there's even a sense of like jeremy as as weird as he is there's a weird sense of i don't don't want to describe it as vulnerability to him but there's a scene when when he tries to wrestle with with chris and when missy sort of and dean tell him to stop and he sort of does that I wouldn't have hurt him thing and sort of storms off with the bottle. It, it's almost, he seems almost like a petulant toddler. And part of me is thinking, yes, that's because he's a horrific human being. And part of me is also thinking, is it because, well, look, growing up in this environment would horribly, horribly screw you up as an individual? Um, I, I don't know. I, part of me sort of wonders then if I'm giving too much credit to a character who is obviously meant to be a horrible, horrible racist. But I think that in a sense to me is, you know, you could take an, an interesting standpoint on it in, in reflecting on how people are invor- informed, I suppose, by their home environment, because 
you know, it's something that I suppose maybe you notice a little bit as you get older and you mix with different groups of people and you see how different aspects of their behavior and different ways that they interact with people has been informed almost, if not necessarily directly by their family, but maybe the environment that they grew up in. So, yeah, I think it's it's interesting to kind of look at, at Rose and Jeremy as opposites in that sense, that she is, you know, even though she's pretending around Chris, you know, with her parents, she's clearly completely happy to go along with it and, you know, has set up her own like scheme, like you say, to kind of lure people in. And then with Jeremy, there's a sense that, you know, yeah, he's more upfront, I suppose. So like there is an implicit sense of honesty there and that he's not trying to hide how terrible he is. But he also seems, I don't know, there, there is almost a sense of conflict there with him that, I don't know, maybe... Well, he seems more damaged, perhaps. Yeah, like there, there is a sense that it's kind of, it's affected him in a way that it doesn't seem to have affected the others. And again, not to imply that that makes him sympathetic, but it does, it gives his character, I suppose, it makes him stand out a little bit from, from the others and that they kind of seem almost um a bit robotic i suppose and that's where like the stepford wise thing comes into it where like they're just completely unthinking unquestioning in what they're doing whereas there's something a bit more primal or something in him and even if it's not necessarily questioning what's happening that it does seem like like you say that it's had an effect in some way that he's been damaged or some part of him is is yeah just just not responding well in this environment I was a bit curious about the the whole kind of early scene where where they hit the deer and the fact that, you know, Chris goes back to, to see if it's dead because he can hear it whining in the woods. And, you know, it's um I, I, I think that that was probably put in there to tie in with the later thing about his mom and the, the whole kind of hit and run thing. Um, but it's just kind of an interesting motif, like this idea of something that's, you know, in its own environment, I suppose, in one sense, because the deer is in the woods being taken out of it in a very kind of sudden brutal horrible way and again this might be me kind of over over reading or something but just the sense that like you know through no fault of its own that it's dying in a really horrible unpleasant way that again I suppose you could tie into the 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 wider issue in a very loose sense of of you know African Americans or people of color again living in their own environment and in their own places where they think they're going to be safe dealing with these outside forces who are so bent I suppose on on completely undermining their existence and like I say, that could be a massive reach, but I just I, I just found kind of the motif of the deer very interesting in that sense. Well, I, I don't I don't really think so at all. Like, I mean, it, it goes to that to Dean, like Dean talking about how, you know, a, a single dead deer is a good start and how they're sort of oh, bringing God, down yeah. the neighborhood and all this sort of stuff, which is kind of the stock. Um, like that's that's the stereotypical racism that you sort of imagine or that my parents would imagine where you'd sort of have people where, where like if you were talking about African-Americans instead of deer, like bringing down property values or um bring down the neighborhood it would be that sort of thing and he's like well one dead one is a good place to start and then obviously that goes to do down in the basement where they've got like there's the really great shot of like when chris is in the basement tied to the chair um and i actually i really like that this is another example of how well constructed the film is because you have like first of all you have the shot of him sort of scraping the chair and scraping at the arms which he does earlier on as well when he gets nervous it's like a nervous tick Mm-hmm. Um, and then that becomes useful because it allows him to basically to pull the stuffing out. And then, like, when he's immediately tied up, you see him sort of, he's able to get his head down to the, the belts to try and untie them with his teeth, even though he can't. Mm-hmm. But that's also very nice visually because that tells you he can get down low enough that if he can get the cotton wool out, he can put it in his ears and block them. Like, I think that's very, very effective way of visually communicating everything you need for the climax to work. Mm-hmm. But then there's the bit where he's sort of, he's staring at the television and over the television staring right back at him is the deer's head, which he then uses to impale Dean. Mm-hmm. Like, I think there is there is something to be said. And then, like, I think even visually, maybe, 
like you can juxtapose that idea of like the stuffed and mounted deer's head with the photos of um of rose's african-american friends that she hangs up behind her bed once chris is subdued and i think you can sort of you can make that connection in terms of like the armitages as a family i think it, it's meant it was filmed in alabama i believe for tax reasons but i think it's obviously meant to be sort of new englandy perhaps mm-hmm. but this idea of like the wealthy luxurious uh this you know who live in an absolute luxury you know white family um who would happily shoot deer and who have taken to hunting african-americans i think i don't think it's an unreasonable connection to make even before you get to the whole chris like being reminded of his mother in the hit and run case i think no i think it's a very very effective sort of uh visual and sort of thematic point mm-hmm. um, and i think there's something to be said for the fact that yeah that he hits the well rose hits the deer on the road uh but then at the climax of the film you end up with all these dead bodies lying in the middle of the road in the armitage driveway anyway as a sort of like a thematic sort of callback no i, I think it is and i think Although I also, my inner cynic was kind of like, well, look, I suspect the writers, I suspect that Peel or, or somebody working with Peel said that it would be nice to have a jump scare in the first 20 minutes. Yeah. No, I can I can absolutely see that as well. Because uh, I do think that's, I've seen that, I'm trying to think of examples, but I've seen that a couple of times in the past couple of years where when you're doing a slow burn horror, like the way that you get a quick and easy jump scare is to throw something in front of a car. But I think that even here, like doing that in this case is, is still a way to sort of to connect that back mm-hmm. to the themes of the film, which is, a, again, a testament to, I think, Peel as a, as a writer and as a director. Yeah, absolutely. And I really liked that way, like you say, at the end that, that um, Chris uses that deer's head kind of, you know, sort of co-ops it to to kill Bradley Woodbury's character. Yeah, like literally with the thing that he's taught so much about. Um and yeah, like the, just, the, I suppose the visual of that, but um, also the fact that, you know, it harkens back to the earlier part of the scene where you're like something that's, you know, been kind of denounced as useless and is just sort of left to die in a corner suddenly becomes a weapon and can be reused in that way. But I mean, yeah, and actually it's funny you should mention that because I do love, like, I love the set dressing of the Armitage basement where Chris is tied to the chair with the old timey television that happens to be a two way video going to the operating table. But I like that in the background, you can see a ping pong table. And there are like bulls balls and stuff. So there's a sense that like when they're not kidnapping and and like horribly torturing and brain transferring like African-Americans, there's a sense that actually this is a pretty cool rec room they have down here. Like this is probably something that they put in as like a nice kind of feature addition to the house. And then it, you know, had had other uses that (laughs) their twisted mind came up with. (laughs) And what do you think of the weird culty aspects of the Armitages actually? No, I think that's, I suppose, the kind of thing that to my mind, in one sense, it might kind of take people out of it because it might be a bit of a leap from maybe where the film started with the more kind of everyday, you know, insidious form of racism to something that's a bit more difficult to, to swallow, perhaps. Um, but then I also think the fact that it's presented as, as something like a cult is kind of a statement in itself. You know, going back to what I said earlier, that people kind of grow up in these environments and they don't question them. And that's how these kind of attitudes get perpetuated in one sense, that, you know, this way of thinking can become very cultish, I suppose, and very insular, um, which is probably, I expect, like, if, if it was kind of a deliberate thing, then that, that might be more the racing that he was going for. Um, I like I think to my mind, there was a little part of me that was, you know, found that maybe a little bit of a stretch compared to the rest of the film. But in saying that, you know, it, as a horror movie like that, it, it does kind of work within the genre. And, you know, it certainly didn't interrupt my enjoyment of the film at all. I just sort of expected the explanation to be a little bit more everyday, <laughs> but we're grounded. Yeah, then we're, we're actually physically translating people's brains into different yeah. bodies. But the, like, yeah, then, then the fear of surgery and the creepy brain transplant and everything, you know, it's very kind of 
within the horror genre so i suppose in, in in that sense like it really does work and very artful as well i really like the the way that the surgery is done in a way that you don't see very little because you see it reflected I, I love that dean's glasses are used as a way to sort of uh they're used very well by peel um because that you get the fire reflecting in them as he does like the weird villainous cult monologue but you also get to see when he peels off uh like stephen root's skull and I feel terrible that I can't remember the name of Stephen Root's character. I'm making it sound like Stephen Root is like a really horrible, blind, racist guy who steals people's brains, as opposed to a really great actor. But when he peels off the, the skin off the skull, like you see the skull in the glasses as opposed to literally seeing it, which is like, it's one of those great, what you don't see is almost scarier than what you do see. Because it's not an obvious gross out moment, but it's still really, really icky. The blood splattering on the white sheet around the around the brain as well as a nice touch as well. Um, I also just like the, the design aesthetic. I feel like whoever the armatures had down to do their basement, like they probably should have done the rest of the house because you have like uh, so you have the candles in the brain surgery room, which are probably not hygienic. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna suggest they ruin the sterility and like later they're a bit of a fire hazard, uh, but they are very atmospheric. Yeah. And they, they add to that kind of um, cultish vibe, like you say, like there's a sort of a ritualistic aspect to it with the candles and the way it's the way it's lit. And I remember thinking that as well, like sitting there being like, this is really just not very hygienic. Like this is an open room and <laughs> there's all sorts of stuff. And then, of course, you're like, well, you know, they don't particularly care because like it's not that they're going into this with a massive level of concern for the well-being of the people involved. But um, yeah, I think the candles there, like you say, while setting up kind of the fire at the end, it does add to that sort of cultish dimension to it and the way they've, they've turned it into like a room where a performance is carried out like a ritual and so on yeah no it is it, it's very very cool yeah i get the impression like this is very much the type of film that you know again will kind of open up a bit more in repeated viewings and you could keep talking about it on and on but um certainly just just one to kind of encourage everyone to go and see and really dwell and reflect on it afterwards um because it's definitely one of the the most enjoyable i think horror films i've seen in in quite a while it really is it's it's one of we've it's actually been a very sort of busy year because we on the podcast what we we do is we talk about a random movie from the list every week um and then when a new movie comes into the list we we talk about that or we try to find time to talk about that and 2017 has actually been a very busy year for us because we've had a constant influx of films we've actually spent more time talking about new films coming in than we have about existing films in the list and like of those those films that have come in and i mean of the films that come in, we've had the five Best Director nominations at the Oscars this year, which was quite interesting. We've also had stuff like, say, John Wick come in. We've had stuff like Logan come in. Um, I actually think that, yeah, that, that Get Out is is probably one of the strongest of the set. It's certainly, like, I suspect that Get Out will probably be on my end-of-year top ten, which is, is um, I think, a testament to it, because I see a lot of films during the year. But I think that it's, it's great to have it on, on, the, on the IMDb list. And it's remarkable in terms of just the... Because I mentioned this at the start when I was talking about the demographics of the list. Um, there's been a lot of talk recently about um, the the internet and lists and voting and the democ democratization of ratings and approval um, that's been sort of weaponized or sort of like gamed uh, by, I, I suspect, the alt-right, but just of, of like white men in general. Um, so, for example, over the weekend, there was the case with uh, Amy Schumar's um, special on Netflix. Um, where it's leather, I think it's called, but it was apparently massively coordinatedly downvoted by uh, certain people on Reddit um, who object to her politics and her views um, and basically 
found this as a way to, to weaponize uh, Netflix's ratings against her. And I suspect that Netflix's announcement that they would be moving away from a five-star user rating system was in some way related possibly to that fact. But I think that what we've seen is like, I, and this is going to be a really boring part of the podcast for anybody who doesn't care about numbers and lists and all this sort of stuff. But I think it's fascinating to me is like, I've been looking at the IMDb and its rating system and it is very much gamed uh, in that sense by those sorts of voters, by a stereotypical like white male, um, and in some respects anti-feminist. And I suspect, and I hate to say it, in some cases anti anti-American and and sort of not anti-American, anti-African American and sort of misogynistic sort of group of people. Like I think that there's a great example of like the Ghostbusters film uh, from last year, um, which. I didn't think it was amazing. I thought it was quite good. Um, but on, on, on IMDb, it's, it's been gained so that by, you know, male voters between the age of 30 and 50, it now, thanks to them, it has a 5.6 rating, which, to be clear, is lower than, like, most Roland Emmerich films, um, to give a mm-hmm. sense of scale, um, or, or lower than Thor The Dark World or stuff like that. Um, and stuff like even um, I Am Not Your Negro, for example, the great documentary, that has a, has an absurdly low rating. It, it had a rating of 4.8, I think, before it was even released because mm-hmm. all these people were going online and voting it down and stuff. And I think Beauty and the Beast is another great example because before it was even released, it also had a similar rating of, I think, 5.4. And again, that was, weirdly enough, by men between the ages of 24 and 40 who somehow had managed to see the film weeks before it was released. Somehow, I suspect they did not. Um, and taken the liberty of voting uh, 1 out of 10 for it. And even Get Out, because I, I was watching Get Out, because I, I sort of, I figured it would be a case study. Before it was released, it, it had been gamed in that way. It had a very low rating of 4.8 by, you know, these horrible online commentators who are like, who believe that racism against white people is something that is legitimately a problem, as opposed to like actual racism that is a problem for minorities. Mm-hmm. Um, and I sort of, I was very positively reassured to see the film do so well and to gain and to like to when it was released it has like a 98 percent rating on on rotten tomatoes for example it's done phenomenally well at the box office um like it, it's done very well with audiences and i'm great i think it's really great to see it on the img list just as a as a rejection of that sort of gaming i think you know no i think it is very heartening as well because i remember actually last year when i i think there was kind of this um flurry of activity on Twitter over a couple of days where, you know, somebody or everyone started posting like kind of their favorite seven films sort of thing. And I think some like analytics company actually totted up what were the most mentioned films. And it was the same thing where everyone was just kind of slightly dismayed because so many of them looked like the type of films that would appear at the top of your average IMDb user, in which case, you know, they mean like the, the stereotypical kind of young angry white male type and so on and so you know imdb is kind of a website that i sort of shy away from for that reason like the the ratings on it seem very arbitrary because it seems like i think you know with any of those websites if it becomes kind of disproportionately widely used by one particular subset of people then and in this case like you know maybe men between a certain age um it it does kind of it sort of alienates people from other groups, not saying that, you know, they don't use it, but there wouldn't be as much activity there. Cause that's something like you mentioned Ghostbusters that I noticed on another website I go to quite frequently, which is Den of Geek. And there was a lot of arguments going on for, you know, 
obvious reasons. Um, but one of the comments there on one of the Ghostbusters articles was that the commenter was saying that he had noticed how quickly um, on articles about Ghostbusters, when kind of the comments kicked off, um, how quickly, you know, like women just seemed to disappear and just didn't engage in the dialogue, you know, for obvious reasons, because, you know, it becomes kind of very yeah. personal. Who wants to subject exactly. to that? Yeah. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, it, it, to my mind, IMDb and maybe places like Reddit are to a certain extent like that, where it seems like, you know, the demographics kind of lean very much in one direction to the sense that other people don't feel comfortable engaging with it. And so you end up with websites that have very skewed perceptions of what is and isn't a good film. And I think it can be very unfair if that sort of gets out into wider society and it starts to affect the way people view films in general, because something I've noticed on my MA and actually is that there, there is kind of still that idea among a lot of people that, um, you know, the type of person who goes to the cinema most often is like, you know, the teenage male kind of thing, whereas, you know, I distinctly remember reading, I suppose this is a U.S. context specifically, but I was reading, I think, about the success of, of the Fast and Furious franchise recently um, and how the demographics that that tends to attract at the box office is a much more diverse group of people. There's a lot of women, there's a lot of people of color code to see it. Um, and the article in question was kind of just talking about how it was a sign that because the cast is quite diverse in terms of its um, racial makeup, um, that people of those backgrounds kind of go to see it because they feel more represented there. And it kind of completely flies in the face of that mentality that it's only kind of white male teenagers go to the cinema. So I think, you know, with things like IMDb, because I suppose there might be a danger that people would attach too much weight to their rating system when it's really kind of a rating system that reflects a very specific point of view. So um, to get back to Get Out, when you see a film like that, that you would not expect maybe that demographic to really like, to kind of get into that that um, to that to list and, and to do quite well in it, it is quite heartening because there's a sense that like, okay, maybe you've not necessarily a, a change of thought or a change of opinion that maybe people who use IMDb are shifting a bit or, or the people who support the film are being very vocal, I suppose, in, in their support of it. Yeah, no, I, I would I would kind of hope that. I mean, one of the things is that um, when myself and Andrew sort of chose to do the, the, the podcast based around the IMDb 250 was one of the reasons we chose to do it was because it was dynamic and because it was user-voted, because it could change uh, so frequently. We thought there was an interesting sort of study there to see what will come in and what will go out. Uh, but I do think you are entirely right when you talk about the demographics of it. Because if you look at the, and myself and Andrew sort of talked about this quite a bit, when you look at the list of the greatest movies of all time as voted for by IMDb users, um, there is, it's very much like a man who grew up in the 90s conception of what good cinema looks like. Um, and you can see that in the top 10 in particular, where like the Shawshank Redemption is is the result of a long, bitter feud. Um, the, sorry, the Shawshank Redemption takes the number one slot as a long-term feud between the Dark Knight and the Godfather. Good which Lord. is just the craziest, yeah, it's the craziest thing ever. Um, and also the most stereotypical young male film fan thing ever. But I do think that there, like, it was really, 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 really heartened to see Get Out get in. And also to see um, Moonlight get in as well, because Moonlight more than... I, I mentioned earlier that like all five of the best director nominees at the Oscars this year got in. So that's like Hacksaw Ridge, that's La La Land, that's uh, Manchester by the Sea, um, that's Moonlight, um, and that's also I feel like I'm forgetting one. What's what was the fifth one? Was it Arrival? Yeah, this is gonna. Be... It was Arrival. Yes, it was. Thank you very much. Arrival got in. Um, and basically, so all five of them got in. And like the one that was in there for the shortest amount of time was Moonlight. Mm -hmm. Uh, that was only in there for I think four hours. Oh lord! Um, which was shocking. Like, because I mean, like whatever you think, I don't like Arrival as much as most people like it. But it's Hacksaw Ridge is inexplicably, inexplicably 
one of those films that is still in the 250 list. Like, Moonlight is not in it. Manchester by the Sea is not in it. Uh, Arrival is not in it anymore. But Hacksaw Ridge is, is somehow still in there. And I think that says that's a very revealing fact about it. But I was just, I was happy to see Moonlight get in. And I remember for the longest time, because I, I mentioned this at the start, when I do this podcast, I have a list of films that I watch to see if they'll get in and if we'll be covering them. And I remember constantly checking Moonlight to see if, if it will get in, because I was very nervous that it wouldn't get in because it, it deserved it really really deserved it. it was a very very beautiful very personal very touching film and i was kind of i was hoping that it would it would get in i was hoping it would stay in unfortunately it didn't but i think that yeah i think i hope that the list is in some ways becoming sort of more diverse or that there's there's more engagement with it because as you you said like people do put stock in the waiting it's like my family when they pick a film to watch they will use metrics now they don't listen to me as often as, as i would like um <laughs> Like, ideally, all they'd say is, Darren, is this a good film? That would be the only metric they would use. But they, they don't, unfortunately. They uh, they value other opinions. And they do look at the IMDb list. And they will typically rule out anything that hits lower than a 7 on the IMDb list, which would rule out Ghostbusters, which is much better than, well, most of the blockbusters last year, to be entirely frank. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is sort of, so I, I like, I think it's good that it's, it's engaged. And I think it's good that it's engaging. And I think, like, you talk about, like, the Fast and Furious doing well. Like, one of the things is that, like, those minority audiences, uh, well, women and minority audiences, have been like consistently overlooked, but they they do invest. Like, was it Tyler Perry has an entire Medea franchise that's built around like underserved African American audiences, mm-hmm. and I imagine like a large part of Get Out was was driven. Like, I would hope it's a great film, regardless. Uh, it's a great film for any audience to watch. But I, I, I hope, well, not I hope, I suspect that a large part of it was driven by African American audiences seeing a film that was like consciously aimed at their experiences and consciously sort of like commenting on something that i think they probably understand more mm-hmm. deeply than my, myself or yourself maybe and i think that seeing them served and seeing seeing that that kind of that recognition of, of a film serving that audience is is something that's great and something that i'd really like to see more of and something that well as much as i enjoyed the kung fu action of john wick is it's something far more worthy of uh, of a sort of recognition debate and i kind of hope it will stick around on here yeah, absolutely. I think the um the the only thing that I can relate just, you know, from from a female perspective is I remember discussing with um some of my friends before Jessica Jones and how um like the Netflix series Jessica Jones and how one of the things I always loved about it was that the way they had portrayed the villain as a very specific type of male character that a lot of women would probably have had to interact with in some shape or form. And you know, the type of guy that maybe doesn't come across to, you know, kind of the the objective bystander someone who's really creepy but you know there's enough microaggressions and and like insinuations in the way that he acts that you just recognize a particular form of creepiness and that's why i think the entitled misogynist yeah exactly and that's why i think you know and like they didn't need to be kind of showy about it they just sort of trusted that their audience or the audience they were going for would recognize that and and why it makes him a villain and i think in films like get out like you say um there's a certain caliber of that worth an underserved audience recognizing something that really speaks to their experiences and um kind of things maybe that they've noticed in their life or people that they know have noticed and how they maybe feel more compelled to support it because of that um and i do think it's you know looking at the the overall list as well because it leans so heavily towards one particular type of taste and i mean the the problem with that as well is that like say you talk about, say, The Dark Knight and The Godfather, and, you know, I really like both of those films, and I don't have a problem with them in theory, but I think, you know, they also speak to a certain type of experience, which sort of blocks out a lot of other films that 
talk about different experiences or from different perspectives. So when you have something that like Get Out, which is very different and very original and very distinctive, um, it's always very encouraging, I think, to see that it's being recognized for that instead of roundly dismissed, which unfortunately a lot of things are like Ghostbusters and and other films that, you know, because they don't cater to this particular demographic on IMDb, they just kind of reject them entirely. So if, if kind of Get Out success on there is a sign that things might be changing it incrementally, then, you know, I, I certainly would see that as very encouraging. And although I don't know how, <laughs> how much I should be optimistic, but it is a good start. I think if people can recognize a great film like that and without letting their their personal opinion. And I mean, I, I'm, I'm wary of, of sort of being uh, being a bad ally like the Armitages and sort of appropriating uh, other culture and stuff like that. But I do think there's a lot of value to be had in like putting a film like Get Out on, on a list like the IMDb and sort of broadening it out and sort of pointing to it as not just a, a film for African-Americans, but a great film of itself, makes it a film that is accessible and interesting for, say, people, you know, like my parents or people like my friends or people who, who wouldn't normally see themselves as advocates of, like, African-American cinema. Because one of the things that, and I, I've talked about this before in the podcast, but the idea of film as a way to, like, a little window into another another world or a way that somebody else sees the world as a way to sort of as a bridge to empathy almost because i mean you talk about jessica jones there right? and and like microaggressions and and the way that say kilgrave the david tennant character was written as a type of misogynist that that women recognize but other people wouldn't sort of look twice at like i mean the the final episode of that was called smile and i mean that's that's the kind of that's the kind of observation where like a lot of people would wonder why a a film about misogyny uh, sorry a tv show about misogyny would name its final episode smile and then as a result, you get like a, a discussion about, well, yes, you have that sort of suggestion that, that women should smile more and how that's sort of like a patriarchal sort of construct and how that sort of raises awareness then in people who, who otherwise would not be aware of it or whether otherwise not think twice about it, but now sort of understand the context for it. And I think that like with Get Out or something like that, I mean, even even I would sort of look at my, my actions or my behaviors and go, well, look, I wouldn't have thought so before, but in, in the context of now having sort of like having seen how maybe like i don't know i won't presume to say how how jordan peele works the world or how how, how even chris looks at the world but like in that context am i now more aware of these these issues or problems that i might be causing or that i might be contributing to or how i interact with people than i, I would have been otherwise and i think that's something that's very worthwhile and very encouraging you know yeah completely and i think like i i completely agree with you when you talk about cinema as kind of a, a way of of like a path to empathy and I think that's at the root of, of the argument that there needs to be more diversity and, and more female directors and more um, directors who come from different kind of racial backgrounds and so on that you know it's it's not enough to just kind of make a film about those experiences you need to have people bring their own voice to it and their own kind of lived experience because otherwise I think the danger is that even if, if you have kind of I don't know let's say let's just say a white person making a film in the vein of Get Out like it obviously wouldn't be the same experience because it would be someone's interpretation of what these experiences are like rather than someone maybe bringing their own lived experience of what it is and allowing that to inform their creative work and I think that's like to me that's why that, that whole discussion around diversity in cinema is so important because you can it gives you a means of if not completely understanding then at least getting an idea of what these um, of what other people's lives are like and you know allowing that to kind of broaden your worldview and the way you look at people and I think that's really important because I mean especially for cinema as kind of a mass medium that's globally accessible in a way that a lot of other things aren't um it really has the potential i think to to open people's eyes in that way 
and I think that's very important. Well, I mean, even even cinema is a communal art form. It's in like it's this dark room where you go and sit and be part of a crowd, um, and you sort of experience something as a group. I think there's yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm being overly romantic and sort of nostalgic and sort of like Im imagining cinema has powers that looking at the world at the moment it might not. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think that there is something to be said for that. Um, yeah, but I think I would agree. Of, uh, well, with that in mind, then um, you can follow uh, the podcast uh, at the two fifty. You can follow us uh, online. We're on um, Stitcher. We're on iTunes. Uh, follow us, like us, give us lots of ratings. But more importantly, uh, Grace, where can we find you? You mentioned at the start of the podcast, but let's just refresh people's memory. Yeah, um, my Twitter feed is um, at Pixie Grace, so that's probably the easiest way to go. Um, and then also, if you're interested specifically in my X Files movie recaps, they're over at themarysue.com. There's a whole wealth of <laughs> of uh, recaps there for anyone who might be interested. Um, and yeah, any other links I suppose to my to my other kind of varied work would be through my Twitter. So that's probably a good place to start. We'll include those in the show notes as well. Uh, thanks a million for coming on, Grace. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Um, no problem. Good. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Um, Good luck, and hopefully we'll hear more from you in the future. Great. Same to you. Cheers. Thanks, Grace.